Welcome back to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we take a look at the weekly Come Follow Me discussions and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in the studio with my friend and this show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. What's up? Nate, it's good to be here producing our first Old Testament episode of the year. Our listeners are going to be in for a treat because we're going to be posting um, two, the first two episodes of the new year um, this uh, coming up soon. Am I right about that? You're absolutely right. I didn't have anything last week. We were kind of doing um, family time, family celebrations uh, in and out of town, trying to uh, be good husbands and fathers and friends. So yeah, we're uh, we're picking it back up. Just to give everybody a heads up, we will be um, releasing this one and then another one pretty much at the same time. Yeah. Thanks for your patience with me We, as we get this figured out and have a little bit of downtime at the end of the year and, and up and running for Old Testament this year. Let's do it. This is going to be a dive into the Pearl of a Great Price just before Old Testament. So in the next episode, we'll get a little bit more into the Old Testament, the Bible, the how the Bible works. In this episode, we're just at the cusp, not quite there. We're going to be talking in the Pearl of Great Price in the Book of Moses and the Book of Abraham. And the Book of Moses, if you're not aware, is, is not based on any text or translation. Joseph Smith was translating the Bible, I guess in a sense it is there, but but there is no underlying text from his translation in the Bible that gives us Moses. The book of Moses is a revelation he received as he was translating the book of Genesis. That's where it's coming from, the text of Genesis, and he receives all of this great extra content that he adds in the book of Moses. And the book of Abraham comes from uh, a purchase in early church history of an Egyptian mummy that had some papyrus scribes, uh, scribes, sorry, not scribes, papyrus rolls, scripts that were rolled up in with the mummy that they purchased and he translated it. Unfortunately, the the, the museum in which it was housed caught fire and a lot of those uh, original manuscripts were destroyed, so we don't have anything to compare them or, or do any work with on, on the original. But these are revelations and, and translations that, that kind of introduce us into it. This is where the church decided to start in, in our study of Old Testament because it takes us to a pre-mortal time frame before the earth was created that we start with Genesis in the creation, this, this spiritual existence before. And here we have Moses' interaction with God. This is one of the greatest stories I find in all scripture as let's just dive into it. Verse one, chapter one, the words of God, which he spake unto Moses at a time when Moses was caught up into an exceedingly high mountain. And right there on that phrase is where I want to focus our first energy, exceedingly high mountain. And this idea of prophets and God being kind of this interaction happening in the mountains is not something that's that's new. We see this. Nephi was caught up into a, a, a mountain. Moses later, when he goes up to receive the Ten Commandments and he receives these revelations, he receives them in the mountain. 
And, and what is the significance of a mountain? And in the Revelation, it was taught that before a temple could exist, if there was no temple, a mountain could be used as a temple. And the idea was, if the sky was the realm of God, and the earth was the realm of man, that man could meet God by going halfway, climbing the highest point he could find. And so they're not just saying that this is any old rolling hill mountain. (laughs) This is an exceedingly high mountain. And and there's a lot of symbolism behind that, too. Totally. Yeah, the idea that meeting God is going to require some serious effort, effort, energy, work. And, And I think that you see this with Moses, what he was willing to, the lengths that he was willing to go to please God. And then God also descending from from heavens wherever his abide is. And and you see these sacred mountains in in mythology, Mount Olympus, the the mountain of the gods. You you see it in the Old Testament. We'll actually go into this a little bit more detail throughout this year when it comes up in Isaiah. They talk about Mount Zion, Mount Zaphon, uh, the, the mountain of the north. And this idea of living in the mountains, we'll, we'll get to that soon. But uh, the mountain of the Lord's house, so there's, there's a lot of symbolism there. And I just wanted us to think about that as we think of the effort that Moses is willing to put in to meet God and how God is catching him up in this place where man and God can meet. So there were no temples in Texas is what you're saying. <laughs> Say what you want about Texas. I'm not. I love Texas, but I'm just saying there's there's like literally zero hills. Yeah, I guess you're gonna have to build. How your would own. you go see God if you were in Kansas or Florida? Florida's pretty flat. The church isn't true in Florida. Ouch. I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> kidding. I love Florida. They're weird, but I love Florida. It's one of my favorite places to go, but it is different. It. <laughs> It's got wonderful weather in the in the winter. That's about all Dude, I everybody know. Everybody there is cool, too, but it's just different. Just like the zaniest things happen in Florida, that's all. Just zany stuff. Like, not heinous crimes, zany crimes. I don't know how else to describe Florida. Dude, if you're from Florida, you know what I mean. I'm not being offensive. I'm just saying it's different. Yeah, uh, it, when it comes to flat places, trying to find a mountain, I don't know. I, I guess you really do have to build your own. And and you look at the structure of early temples, that's what they were doing. Look at the pyramids. Look at, go go down into Native American history and these big structures that they're building, this idea that they're building these temples. Go there to old go. Babylon. The, that's how you do it. The ziggurats. They build these structures and this idea that approaching God required man and, and they would do this one of two ways. One is through the temple ascending and this idea that you have to climb stairs or steps to get holier and holier as you're going. The other is they could do a maze. Uh, kind of the same idea if it's flat, like a good point that you bring up. Maybe they could represent this journey not laterally, but challenging it through a maze. Uh, the idea of, where, where was it in, in the, the islands? They had the... The, the the myth that I'm thinking of where they capture oh, yeah, yeah. the Minotaur. Uh, yeah, the, so Icarus and uh, Daedalus. The Crete, the island of island Crete, of Crete, right? Yeah, that's right. And, Daedalus and, built it. Yeah, and, and this idea that it's a maze. If, you, if you're trying to get into the sacred center that you have to navigate through this, this maze that has inherently dangers or struggles that you have to overcome. 
whether it's cherubim and a flaming sword or a guy with a bull head in the maze or or this idea that this dangerous mountain that you're ascending, taking, reaching God takes work. Love it. Let's keep going. All right. God introduces himself in one of the most powerful ways I see in all of scriptureness. Scriptureness? <laughs> Come on, dude. I can't bag on Florida and then have you use words like scriptureness here in Utah. And- <laughs> <laughs> Why Florida, dude? Why? I'm sorry, Florida. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, th- I, did- I didn't mean to turn on you this morning. <laughs> it, Scriptureness. Let's keep rolling with it. Nobody. In all scripture, I don't even know if we have any listeners. Anyways, who cares? <laughs> Just keep going. This, this is one of the greatest introductions God has ever made. Whew. Okay, here we go. Here we go. He introduces himself. He says, verse three: "Behold, God spake unto Moses, saying, Behold, I am the Lord God Almighty." And so I looked for this combination. Lord, we've seen all the time. God, absolutely, we see it everywhere. Almighty, nothing new. But Lord God Almighty does not appear a single time in the entire Old Testament. Which is weird, because I swear I've heard that everywhere. It it shows up four or five times, maybe six. I can't remember. In the book of Revelation, it shows up. Okay. And and, and the book of Revelation is a little bit more Old Testament-y. Old, wow. Here we go. <laughs> What's the way? Dude, you've been in Florida for too long. Old Testament-ish? In Testament-ish. Go, let's keep going. <laughs> it, it does have a, an Old Testament vibe to it. It cites the Old Testament uh, more times than any other book in the New Testament, but without actually quoting it. I think it's, it's one of the only books in the New Testament that doesn't actually quote the Old Testament, but it does reference it, allude to it, speak to it. It has that feel. A lot of scholars believe that the original language for the, the, the book of Revelation was, was Hebrew. But that is the only place we see this combination of words and the Lord introducing himself. So let's talk about what this combination of words means. We've talked about the word Lord before. Lord is a translation. In Hebrew, it's Adonai, means Lord. But when it's all caps in the Old Testament or when we're using it as the name of God, usually it's a stand-in word for the, the word Jehovah, which, which is kind of an invented word. Uh, Yahweh, the the Lord, the name of the Lord. And the name of the Lord, the reason why there's some ambiguity into the name of the Lord, whether it's Jehovah, Yahweh, or whatever you want to refer to it as, is it is a name that the Jews were not allowed to say out loud. It, It was a stonable offense. They could say it once a year on the Day of Atonement. In the Holy of Holies, the high priest could use it. Other than that, not allowed. And and so as it's it's shown all throughout the scripture and to keep people from saying it out loud, they they would put the the vowels for Adonai which means Lord into the consonants for the Lord's divine name. So it, when the master eats vowed the text later on in the AD to help people that were kind of separated from this generation to remind them, say Lord, don't say his name. Mm. And that's why in the Old Testament, when you're reading and you see Lord, you'll see it in all caps because it stands for his name, um, but but we're saying Lord instead to, to avoid saying his name. But that name, the, the four consonants, comes from the verb to to be. 
uh, hava, to, to have life, to be, to, um, to exist. And when you prefix it with the yod, it's a third masculine singular prefix. And scholars think the way it was vowed, it was vowed in the sense that he will cause. So it will, he will cause to be. His name was life giver, creator. He is the one that causes to be. It's a, it's a title for a creator. And then you have God, Elohim, and, and this idea that he is the preserver, the maintainer. And then you have Almighty, which comes from the Hebrew word Shaddai. And the Hebrew word Shaddai means to, to destroy. But not just to destroy, but like to, to destroy with a vengeance. Like what, what's, what's they say what, to, to, uh, what, to, to destroy the target with... Uh, with extreme prejudice? With extreme prejudice. Thank you. That's that's what this means. It has that sense of of to devastate. Let's see. Should I means to deal violently with, devastate, ruin, destroy, to violently destroy, devastator, and that's what we translate as Almighty. I got to tell you, you're you're kind of like a you're ruining my childhood a little bit with this. Have you ever heard Amy Grant's song El Shaddai, the Christmas one? No. It's like this beautiful, peaceful thing. I and she's just singing like El Shaddai. El Shaddai. The destroyer? The destroyer. Come on, Amy. With extreme prejudice. Amy, do you know what you're singing? But it's such a sweet, beautiful song. It's about the destroyer? The destroyer. Oh my gosh, dude, I'm never gonna be able to hear that beautiful song the same way ever again, Jason. I'm sorry. That's okay. I mean at least now I know. But but you could just translate to the English Almighty and and you know you know what it's the name of God and God is great yeah right dude but yeah. this is how he introduces himself and these three names have, have kind of significance he is the one that creates the one that preserves and the one that destroys with and takes, extreme prejudice with extreme prejudice and he takes and embodies all three of these roles in introducing himself to Moses saying I am all of these. And these different aspects are very significant as you look at different religious beliefs going back through time. You look at Hinduism, and, and they've got three main gods, a trinity, if you will. And the trinity consists of Brahma, who is the creator, Vishnu, the maintainer, the god of life and fertility, and then you have Shiva, the destroyer. And they believe, in some facets, they would believe that it's one god with these three different heads or three different characters or personalities. And God is saying, that's me. I'm actually all of them. I do have this characteristic. And we'll see this as we get into the idea of creation, that he creates, he maintains, and when the time is done, he destroys in order to create again. Greek, you see the same idea. Poseidon, the sea god, and you think about creation and life coming from the sea, and then you have Zeus, who is the sky god, the god of rain, fertility. How many times did Zeus come down and have kids? This, <laughs> That's a this, nice this, way of saying it. This fertile god. And then you have Hades, this death and this hell. And you see it in the other Canaanite religions, Yom, the sea god, Baal, the sky god, again, fertility, rain, maintenance, preservation, preservation. Preservation? Preservation. And then Mot, the, the god of, of death and hell. You even see it in the Egyptian mythology. You see it all over. It's interesting. And and to have that borrowed into this, this god who's coming to Moses and introducing him and saying, I am 
all of these gods. It is just me. I am the god. So it's a cool name. It's it's a cool way to introduce himself. It's awesome. Something we kind of miss when you don't understand the meaning behind the names. He also introduces himself as endless, and this is a common theme throughout this when he says, Behold, I am the Lord thy God, and endless is my name. I am without beginning of days or end of years, and is this not endless? And he says, Thou art my son, and I will show you the workmanship of my hands. A very significant that he would call Moses his son. And and when he says, I'll show you the workmanship of my hands, but not all, for my works are without end, and also my words, and they never cease. So there's two different kind of aspects to this. This, this idea that there is no end to his creation can be literally endless in, in space that you can't see the edge of my creation. It goes on forever. But he's just barely explained himself as a being with no beginning and a being with no end. So if you were to even take a snapshot of everything he did, it's not everything that he will have done because just after the snapshot's done, he continues to create. It's endless in time. And and it's it's interesting that this jives with with our understanding of the universe. If you if you look at a drop and you were to, to drop uh, a liquid or, or a handful, maybe powder, onto a piece of paper from, from, from a height and, and look at how it scatters, what do you notice about that drop? At, at, at the point of origin, the impact, where it first hits, you have a high concentration of material. As you expand and spread out from that concentration, it gets a little bit less, Right? And, and you might have one, one little particle that found its way a couple inches away from everything else that just, just really went far away. And you might have a couple that are a little bit further and then most everything that's, that's there. This tells us a little bit about its creation and where it started and how it spread out and where it began. When we look at the universe, we see no such thing. Because it is constant, the distribution of matter throughout the universe, no matter where you look. In any given point, you take it and then you run it and mathematically derive the concentration of matter in that given space, and it is the same as any other given space in any direction. As far as we can see, it's universally distributed, meaning it has no point of origin. There is no center. We are just as much the center as anywhere else, and it seems to expand in every direction, as far as we can tell, and we cannot see the limits. Just as God is telling Moses, you can't see the end of my creation, scientifically speaking today, light takes time to travel. We can only see as far back as we've been at this point in time. We can't see further because light hasn't had the chance to reach us. It doesn't matter how powerful our telescopes are, we will never be able to see outside of there. And the other crazy thing about how we understand our universe is the idea that space is being generated currently between objects. So if you have two objects, they can't travel faster than the speed of light. That's our, that's our universal speed limit, constant. But because space is being generated between the two objects at a rate which causes the two objects to move faster than the speed of light, 
one object on one extreme on this side and another object on the other extreme are moving away further from each other than the speed of light can travel, which means the light from that object will never reach us physically. We cannot see the outside curtains of space if there existed such a thing. It's crazy. So God's point to Moses that there is, there is no end and you cannot behold it uh, finds today in modern-day science uh, matching agreeance, which is something that I, I want to kind of come back to when we hit our next episode and we talk about creation, is this idea that science and God are one and the same, not two forces that are at odds. So, so God explains that to Moses. You cannot see everything, but I'll give you a little bit of a peek. I'll give you a snapshot. And he has this wonderful conversation with him. After that, God leaves, and Moses finds himself kind of weakened. He was transfigured, and, and it takes him some, some, some while to recover from this encounter, kind of like Moses, uh, Joseph Smith in his first vision. There's a lot of similarities that happen here. And in this state of, of, of weakness, the devil appears to him and says, I am God, worship me. And Moses says, where is your glory? And, and one of the things is, is God is telling him, son of man, where, where God says to Moses, you are my son. You, you're, you have eternal nature where I am eternal and you are offspring of me. You are also eternal and you are part of this great plan. And Satan's coming and saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You're, you're a product of this planet. You are a product of mortality, man, decay, death. I am eternal worship me. And, and Moses says, where is your glory? And refuses to. And one of the statements that he says is, is, is one of the, the greatest. Verse 18, Moses' response to Satan. And again, Moses said, I will not cease to call upon God. I have no things to inquire of, excuse me, I have other things to inquire of him. For his glory hath been upon me, wherefore I can judge between him and thee, depart hence. It's interesting that um, you brought up earlier about the, like the the maze uh-huh. um, that Daedalus built that had like the Minotaur, the son of God that was there to like get in the way or to like uh, try to foil the your journey to the presence of God. And it is interesting the kind of the parallels with even that you know when Joseph Smith has his first vision, he, he is presented with a a son of God, even though not like in full glory, son of God, right? That that is also there trying to to foil his experience or to try to you know what I mean to try to um, not let not let the mortal person into the presence of God. And the same, you say, you see the same thing here with Moses. And even when you're in the temple, right, that relates a lot to the idea of Satan continually trying to infuse himself and to keep the full, you know, experience from happening. And that imagery of struggle embodied in that mountain, and and it makes for a great talking point or self-reflection even to ask what what are my struggles or what do i need to overcome or how can i approach god and 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 what are some of the things that stand in front of me as a minotaur yep as a maze but also to take hope in the fact that if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and you feel like 
all of the bad things are happening seemingly like right as you're trying to be the best you can be or trying to fix something you're trying to fix or whatever that journey is, right? Mm -hmm. To take hope in the fact that that's part of the process. Part of the process is you're on the cusp of something life-changing or the cusp of something divine or amazing. Yeah, of course, Satan or that thing is going to try as hard as it can to keep you from getting there. And it's it, it's part of the plan. <clears throat> yep. What 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 point is a maze without the Minotaur? Yep. And I love that part of Moses's drive, or maybe what's helping him overcome the mountain, is the fact that he has questions. When when he says, "I will not cease to call upon God." I have other things to inquire of him. I think questions gets a bad rap. And and it's it's important it, questions can be one of the greatest catalysts that bring us to God. I think that's why so many times the scriptures appear ambiguous. And and I feel like that's why the Old Testament has so much to offer us this year is is just the questions, the, 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 the difficult nature of understanding it is a wonderful opportunity to bring us closer to God. And, and it's, we've, we've talked about these dichotomies before. And, and a cleaving, it, it can separate on one side or the other. It can bring us closer or further apart. And if the questions is what cause us to doubt God and leave, or is it the questions that drive us to God to find answers? And for Moses, it was the latter. I will not cease to call upon God because of my questions. I will use my questions and and that is what's driving him to climb this exceedingly high mountain and overcome this minotaur that stands in his way. And what question does he ask? In verse 36, here, here's, here's where Moses starts with the Lord. When the Lord returns back to him in his presence, he says, And it came to pass that Moses spake unto the Lord, saying, Be merciful unto thy servant. Anytime you preference a question, to the Lord with be merciful, you know you're asking a tall order, right? That, that, that should just, yeah. Be merciful unto thy servant, O God, and tell me concerning this earth and the inhabitants thereof and also the heavens. Then thy servant will be content. That's a tall order. Tell me about this earth, all the inhabitants that are in it, and then tell me about the heavens and everything in the heavens, and then I'll be happy. I just want to understand everything. 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 Tell me everything. That is a tall order. That's a good place to start, I guess. And, and God kind of has to, to help taper this a little bit, because sometimes what we're asking, we don't even realize what we are asking. Does Moses realize, I mean, as exciting as it would be to understand all of the different worlds and life on the different worlds and what it extends to and the life of the universe and how this is going to happen and all of these different things, does he, does, is he able to comprehend it all? And God says in response, 37, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, The heavens, they are many, and they cannot be numbered unto man, but they are numbered unto me, for they are mine. 
And as one earth shall pass away, and the heavens thereof, even so shall another come. And there is no end to my works, neither my words. And by his words, the heavens pass away. By his words, the earth pass away. This is hearkening back to his title to Moses as he introduces himself, El Shaddai, I am the destroyer. But as one pass away by my words, so shall another come, the Jehovah, the Lord. And he is God who preserves them and, and makes it so that life can exist. And, and kind of hearkening back to that. But he, but he tries to focus Moses' discussion, for behold, this is my work and my glory, to bring the past, the immortality, and eternal life of man. My whole purpose as a God, the great creator, and, and when I create, and when I preserve, and when I destroy, the entire goal or function and focus of this is to bring to pass the eternal life of man and the, the glory, to exalt you, to make you like me, to, to, to refine to find gods and make gods. He is the, 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 this creator of gods. Which going back to the title Lord God, when you put Lord as the creator, it's not just that the, ty- that the names are significant independently, but when you put creator in front of God, that he will cause to be or he will create, and then the next name, Elohim, the gods, he will create the gods. That is his entire, his entire purpose. It's awesome. And, and he, she focuses and says, I want to tell you about this life. And in verse 35, again, another example of him trying to limit the scope to something that's pertinent to Moses and something that he really wants us to understand. But only an account of this earth and the inhabitants thereof give I unto you. For behold, there are many worlds that have passed away by the power of my word. And there are many that now stand innumerable, and they are unto man, but all things are numbered unto me. Only an account of this earth will I give unto you. Which, which frames the discussion when he's talking a little bit earlier. Uh, he says, And the first man of all men have I called Adam, which is many. And I think a lot of times we look at this verse and we say, Oh, he's got lots of Adams first man on lots of planets all over the place. But remember again, he's telling Moses, only the account of this earth and the inhabitants thereof will I give you. The name man in, in Hebrew is Adam. Mankind is Adam. And, and the name for Adam is mankind. It's the same. So if I go here in verse 34, the first man of all men here on earth I called Adam... Adam, which means many, all which means mankind. So and, you don't think that, what do you think that, uh, I know a lot of people say that, does that mean that at, there's just a gazillion atoms because of Adam meaning many? Yeah, I look at that and say, I call him Adam because he, because Adam means mankind, because all are going to be flowing from him. Okay. Many come from so Adam. So many from one and not necessarily... Um, a whole lot of atoms scattered across the universe. Yeah, and maybe there is a whole lot of atoms scattered across the universe, but again, God is framing this discussion saying, I am only giving you an account of this earth. Okay. I I give you Adam, and I called him Adam because his name means many, because all man's spring from so him. So it's very much, the name at least, is just in relation to this to this earth. That's how I understand it. Okay. 
And, and I think it's cool when you read the story of Adam, you literally are also reading the story of mankind because Adam and mankind is the same word in Hebrew. Put yourself in the shoes of Adam, which I think is what the temple is supposed to be doing, is having us embody this experience and realize that the story of mankind is the story of Adam. The story of a man who God created, who, who God gave specific instructions, Inevitably, mankind has a hard time following those instructions, but when he does, he, he discovers his foolishness, his nakedness, his embarrassment, his shame. God takes him aside, sacrifices a life to cover his nakedness, to cover his shame. And the Hebrew word for cover, kafar, is the same word translated as atonement. And we'll get into that story of Adam here as we're talking about Old Testament. But, but back here, this idea that mankind is the story of Adam or the story of Adam is the story of mankind. Put yourself in those shoes and realize you are God's son and he does care about you. And just as he has taken care of Adam to exalt him, to take care of him, to place him on his side, that's what role he has for you. You are as significant to God as his first creation was in the Garden of Eden. It's awesome. Let's keep going. All right. Um, Maybe one last thing to mention from the book of Moses before we switch over into the book of Abraham. In Abraham, it's going to talk about who do I send? Here am I, send me. Here am I, send send me. And, And... it circles back into a, a, a more lively discussion about this in in Moses and and Moses and Abraham are the two places where where we have any of this discussion. So, in the book of Abraham, at the very end of chapter three, and, and we'll get to Abraham three in its entirety here in a second. But I, I just wanted to tie this back to Moses because all it tells us in verse twenty seven, and the Lord said, "Whom shall I send?" And one answered like unto the Son of Man, Here am I, send me. And another answered and said, Here am I, send me. And the Lord said, I will send the first. And the second was angry and kept not his first estate. And at that day many followed after him. And that's all it tells us in Abraham. So going to Moses, this is outside of the, 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 the lesson a little bit, but as we were in the book of Moses, I wanted to kind of bring this in as part of that discussion from Abraham. Verse 4, uh, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1, And I, the Lord God, spake unto Moses, saying, That Satan, whom thou hast commanded in the name of mine only begotten, is the same which was from the beginning. And he came before me, saying, Behold, here am I, send me. I will be thy son, and I will redeem all mankind, that one soul shall not be lost. And surely I will do it. Wherefore, give me thine honor. But behold, my beloved son, which was my beloved and chosen from the beginning, said unto me, Father, thy will be done, and the glory be thine forever. Wherefore, because that Satan rebelled against me, and sought to destroy the agency of man, which I, the Lord, had God, had given him, and also that I should give unto him mine own power, by the power of mine only begotten, I caused that he should be cast down. 
And he became Satan, yea, even the devil, the father of all lies, to deceive and to blind men and to lead them captive as his will, even as many as would not hearken unto my voice. We get another kind of reference to him in Isaiah 14. Maybe maybe let's just read that real quick and and then kind of take this into a discussion. I don't want to hijack this whole episode on a discussion about this, but just maybe understand what was being said here and what happened to try to put it all in context. Okay. So Isaiah 14, and, and this seems to be having a, a discussion more about the king of Babylon, but it's in terms of, of Satan. Verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation and in the sides of the north. In the sides of the north, by the way, that word north is Saphon, which is the name of a mountain which was north of Israel, so that's how it gets translated to north. But again, this is another reference to a high mountain where the gods reside. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the cavern of Saphon, the, the plate, like a Mount Olympus, if you will. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Wow. So this idea that you had, and, and as Abraham tells us, the first says, and as Moses tells us, the first was like the Son of Man says, here am I, send me, and then the second comes and says, here am I, send me. But as Moses kind of fills in and as Isaiah tells us, give me your power. This is a deviance from the plan. At first, God says, what shall I do? Here is the plan. And Satan says, give me your power so that I can save everyone. It's, it's not just let me fill the role that you're asking me to fill. It's let me do this differently because I don't trust the way you're doing this. You don't deserve your power. Give it to me. I will be the king of the gods, the god of the gods, the lord of lords. I will rise above all, and I will subject all to me. Destroy the agency of man and, and take all of the credit for doing your work. So where Jesus was willing to descend, descend below all things, basically be born poor in, you know, a stable with, you know, with, with no earthly, you know, means or whatever, take ridicule, all of, you know, all of the punishment, and eventually, you know, be hung in between two criminals. Satan was going... No, no, no. Let me do this, but let me do this from the top down. Yes. <laughs> like send me not only not only will I do this, but I want to do this as the conquering god of gods. Like I want to do this from the highest place. So not only do I not want to descend, you know, below all, I want to I want to rise above all and basically do it as a tyrant, do it as a, you know, as a master. Give me your power, give me your glory. I'm coming here I will be 
God. I will be the greatest of all. I will I will rule I will rule as a god and not necessarily descend below all. And Interesting. Didn't, didn't exactly have our best interest in mind. No, I mean it seems very um, self. Uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. He was he was only caring about his own personal status and and glory. And and I think this gets to be a little bit of a hang up for people in this idea that that Satan just had everybody's best interest in mind. Sure. Well, it's easy to it's easy to think that as a kid without understanding the full context of all of this. And it's it's not that he was going to save all people. It, it was that he was going to how can you be saved if you if you have no agency, if you're not making yes. these choices, if you're not becoming how do you become like God without learning to choose to On act your own. to be. Yeah. I read um I read Anthony Burgess's um A Clockwork Orange uh, you know sometime as an adult but it's interesting because Anthony Burgess went and rewrote kind of the intro to the book basically saying hey my book got hijacked for a movie that I don't like and didn't support and and left out the most important part of this but the idea is is that the character throughout the book is he's a knucklehead and then basically brainwashed and forced to where he can now no longer make bad decisions and the whole book deals with the the idea of if a man is forced to do something good, does that make him good, right? If a man is if a man is compelled to do something righteous, does that mean that he's righteous, right? And and that the idea is that our acts alone or our deeds alone, um, righteous or not, mean nothing if it if it wasn't because we were um, wanting or, or personally striving with the choice to also do something incorrect, right? Yes. And that and that that man isn't good by simply doing good things, but a man is is good by doing good things with the option to also not do good things. And um, you know, I temperance. I, I love the idea. I do love the idea that as is that by the way, it the the other part of this is too is that Satan's plan it wasn't actually an option. Because the idea is is that once God takes away our agency, he ceases to become God. Like, that's the one thing of ours, right? Our, our, our free will, our agency, is the one actual thing that we have that hasn't been given to us by God, right? And that, and that if, if God were to ever take that away from us, that, that's, that disrupts the entire um, system of the universe. That disrupts eternity, right? And so... That's the thing is Satan's plan does wouldn't even work <laughs> like it doesn't even it's it's not actually even an option but what it does is show you it shows you where his heart was right it shows you where his intent was and um I mean I, I that's I I guess an important thing to even remember too is that it's like you said is is it deviates from the plan but it, unfortunately for Satan it deviates in a plan that's not even possible because you can't in the natural order of things, take away our free will and still have not the the entire universe, you know, burst into chaos. Because that is the one thing that we have to have for this all to work, is we have to have the ability to choose right from wrong or just from one thing to another thing. And and how many times today do we challenge God and say you don't it's 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 foolishness this this religion is foolishness it doesn't make sense i'm better off if i go and do it and and we put our will 
above God's will. And, and then you can see the inspiration behind that. You can see the source. This is what happened in the very beginning. Yes. Let, me, let me do it better. My way is better. Let me put my will above this. Where Christ comes humbly and says, you know what? I want to be like the Lord. I want others to be like the Lord. I'm going to invite you to come follow me, but I'm going to put my will here. And in the end, he gets his will back so much better because now he he's gained temperance. It takes, anybody can step into power. Anyone can try to be the king, but what person can step away from power when they have it is wise enough to know and, and to learn, and that person that has temperance, that has control, that has the ability, that's a person you can trust. Yep. You, you, you brought up one more thing that I would just like to highlight, too, is though you brought up a great point, too, and that is when Jesus said, send me, and, and all glory be to you, God, right? All glory be to you, Father. The, the, the difference between that and Satan saying, well... No, I want all the glory, and I want to do this, and I want to do this. Oh, oh, and and also, I'll just make sure that everybody's saved. It's interesting because let me ask you this: whose best interest do you think he had in mind? His own. That's exactly right. Like, so that's the thing is when you said as kids, sometimes we kind of get caught up with like, wait, Satan was saying that he wanted to save us all. I'm like, that's that's what Satan does, though, is that he gives you something that sounds good, and then he puts his own little spin in it. He gives you the lessons of God mingled with the philosophies of men, right? He gives you just enough almost truth and then just enough of what you want to hear. Good versus evil, right versus wrong, and then he slips in pleasure versus pain. It's like those two aren't opposites. Pleasure and pain are not opposites. But but that's but but when you look at how Satan talks when we go to the temple, when you look at how Satan talks when you read through the scriptures, this is his trick, is that he gives you just enough of like what you want to hear, or or what you might consider good or right, and then he he and then interjects his own personal interest in it. Look at look at the people look at the people in, that we talked about in Doctrine and Covenants that that were. Um, that uh, we're trying to to foil the early um, church establishment and that we're persecuting Joseph Smith or stealing the scriptures. And it's always like, well, they thought they were doing the right thing because the, an angel came and told them, you need to go do this to, to you know, or whatever it is, right, to, to be doing the right thing. But while you're doing that, I also need you to do this dishonest thing at the same time. How, how many times in the name of religion are we persecuting... In oh, history. I mean, if you want to go back even that big of picture, I mean, that is the story of most organized religion, right? And that is the, here's here's just enough good, but let me just slide in my own personal, because, and, and by the way, because what's the outcome of all of those things? In theory, more people to be miserable with me after this life is over. Like it all still comes back to, he's still looking out for him. And when he said, when, 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 again, as kids, we look at this and we're like, oh man, Satan's plan seems pretty good. That's the rub. That's the rub. Is that it does seem good when you look at it face value, but then when you look at the intent behind and when you look at what that actually would require, you go, oh, that's, I mean, it's literally not even possible. And, and it's incredible 
we'll talk about this when we get into the, to, to, to the Satan and the, and the Garden of Eden. But it's incredible to me how how honest he is, and yet unhonest at the same time. It's it's not like he's, he's he's saying whatever it takes. Like a lot of times, it's straight up truth, and and you and you start following it and start listening to it, and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa! What is the source of this, and what is he really? It's tricky. It's slippery. It's it's snaky, snaky, very snaky. Anyways, it's great. All right, should we get into Abraham? Let's let's dive into Abraham three and see what we have to to, to pick up there. Okay, okay. Abraham three is going to be taking us into Abraham's understanding of the stars, and again, a lot of the purpose for the come follow me discussion taking us into. Moses and Abraham is to give us kind of a peek at what the uh, pre-mortal life was before coming here on earth. And Abraham talks about receiving a sea. And I, Abraham, had the Urim and Thummim, which the Lord my God had given unto me in Ur of the Chaldees. And I saw the stars that they were very great, and that one of them was nearest unto the throne of God. And there were many great ones that were near unto it. And the Lord said unto me, These are the governing ones, and the name of the great one is Kolob, because it is near unto me, for I am the Lord thy God, which I have set one to govern all those which belong to the same order upon which thou standest. Now, this is our introduction to Kolob. And and I want to make an important distinction here in Abraham 3, 3, when they're talking about that. He says, and I think a lot of people interpret Kolob to be the planet where God resides or that we're heading to Kolob. If you could hide to Kolob, if you could get to where God is, this idea that this is our end goal. But but that's not that's not what the scripture is saying. Because it is near unto me. So it's not where he is, it's close to him. Um, for I am the Lord thy God, and I have set this one to govern all those which belong to the same order that which upon thou, that, that you stand on. And so I've tried to understand what what this is and what, what Kolob is. Then he goes on to talk about these other stars and the revolutions, and he talks about the day on the moon being longer than a day on Earth, which scientifically today is accurate. The, the moon is tidally locked to the Earth as it turns, and it has a longer day period than the Earth does. So there are differences based on, on, on this understanding. And, and in this... Pearl of Great Price, the book of Abraham, these manuscripts, you have a picture that Joseph Smith describes as Abraham sitting on Pharaoh's throne, explaining to him how the stars and the heavens work. And again, modern astrophysicists and, and those who study astronomy have, have come to credit our knowledge of astronomy coming from the Greeks, the constellations and how the stars and whatnot, the Greeks received their knowledge from the Egyptians, who the Egyptians received it from the Babylonians. So this idea that Egypt received their knowledge from the stars, from the, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, is accurate with what Joseph Smith is telling us in this book of Abraham, which I think is pretty cool. And he talks about this Kolob governing all of the planets, that, or all of the... Let's see. Let's make sure I read this right. Kolob. Uh, I have set this one to govern all those which belong to the same order as that upon which thou standest. When I first read that, and as I look at this, it almost makes me think of our solar system. This idea, if you're looking up at the stars, and there are a group of stars that are brighter than all of the others that travel the same path every night. I don't know if you realize this. Because our solar system 
is a is is disc shaped. The sun being at the center and all of the planets kind of somewhat aligning along this pattern, extending out. That means that the moon and the planets follow the same path through the skies from east to west. They don't they don't show up in the north or the south. You can always see them in the same area. They always go right along the same trail through the sky. And they're brighter than all of the other stars. And because of that, these planets are often named after gods in ancient mythologies. Uh, this idea that these these were the gods, these were these were greater than the other stars. They're brighter than the other stars. There's something different, and and so when I look at this idea that this governs all of those upon the order which thou stands on, I almost I almost look at this as our solar system and this idea that maybe the sun is the governing power that governs all of the planets upon which we reside, and these different planets spreading out, and I and I try to understand it that way, but I don't know that I don't know that you can. Because then he's, he talks about the, the, the revolutions and he says that, um, verse 9, And thus there shall be one reckoning of the time of one planet above another until thou come high unto, nigh unto Kolob, which Kolob is after the reckoning of the Lord's time, which Kolob is set nigh unto the throne of God to govern all those planets upon which the same order in which thou standest. And it is given unto thee to know the set time of all the stars. And, and when he talks about the set time, he says that a thousand... Um, Let's see, verse 5. And the Lord said, The planet which is the lesser light, that which is to rule the day, even the night... um, Sorry, let me... And the Lord said unto me, The planet which is the lesser light, lesser than that which is to rule the day, even the night, is above or greater than that which thou standest, in point of reckoning, for it moveth in order more slow. This is in order because which thou standest above the earth." Upon which thou standest. Therefore, the reckoning of its time is not so many as to its number of days and months and of years. And and when he gets to Kolob, he talks about it being a thousand, um, a thousand years, it being a different time. And as we look at our solar system, I don't I don't see how any of the revolutions or any of the even the revolution of the sun or or Mercury or Venus. None of them even comes to where a day is equal to to a thousand years. You just don't get that that same conversion. So as nice as it you, sounds, couldn't you quite farther away though? Couldn't, couldn't you what? Couldn't you get that? Couldn't you get that? If the if the if the object was significantly farther away from Earth than like the sun. Well, the problem is it depends on the the spin. If you're talking about days. So it would need t- to be like the size of the the planet. Yeah, and, and and Venus is closer to Earth, and it has a longer day. Uh, I believe its day is about 53 days because it spins slower. It, it almost gets tidally locked with the sun uh, in, in like a 2 to 3 ratio where it, where it does turn, and you see the backside of Venus come around. So it does have a day, but it's a longer day. But the longer day is like 53 days. And, and it really depends on the spin of the planets. And, and as you're talking about coming towards the center near to where it governs, it just, it just breaks down. The time doesn't seem to, to fit with what, what's being described here. Hmm. Interesting. So a, a few years back, as I tried to, to understand what Abraham's talking about, and, and I hope you guys don't mind I go down this, uh, this road a little bit, talking about Kolob or where this is or what this is, 
the the Hebrew for kolab, I, I thought first came from lev, L-B, meaning heart. And the kaf in the front, kol, kolev, would mean like, as, similar to the heart. And, and where the heart is at the center, towards the center, it would be like the heart or towards the center, and then everything else out, out, outwards. So that was one interpretation as I try to think, you know, what, what, what could it mean? What does it mean? But then as I look, there's, there's also this idea that Kolob comes from the Hebrew Caleb. And Caleb, it's the same, it's the same three-letter consonants, the, the, the Kaf, Lamed, um, Bet. And it means dog. And and dog is, is, as a dog is, is if you're going to talk about dog being man's best friend, being close to close to that, I, maybe maybe that's not a good isn't, comparison to make. Isn't there like a dog constellation or something though? There is a dog constellation, and and there's a dog star. Oh, there's a dog star, and and the dog star is named Sirius. Oh, that's right, that's right. I know that. And it's kind of interesting. Sirius gets its name. Either from Osiris or Isis, named after these Egyptian gods, but there's something about this star that that just seems interesting enough. So let me just read a few points about this, and and then I'll kind of end it, and and I'll end it all just saying, I don't know, I don't know if anybody knows. It's it's just it's just kind of fun to think about, and hopefully one day we do know, and maybe like Moses we have the courage to actually ask God to understand it instead of endlessly speculating, thinking that we have an answer on our own or we'll figure it out. Okay, first point. Sirius was known as the dog star across time and culture. It was known as the dog star among the Cherokee, the Blackfoot, the Pawnee, the Mayans, among many other tribes in North America. In Chinese and Japanese history, it was known as the dog star. And back in the Near East, the Egyptians associated the, the star with the dogs. And, they, they, and the, the dog days of summer when the dogs would lap their tongues was when Sirius would, would be out and bright and they would sacrifice dogs to the star. Um, it was also associated with dogs among the Greeks and the Romans. It's a part of the constellation Canis Majoris, meaning the greater dog. And it's like the nose, the tip of the dog following, um, following the other constellation. Uh, Orion, right? So, it it it's interesting to me. It's fascinating whenever you have parts of the world that are not connected. That, that as far as we know, what do ancient Chinese civilizations have in common with the Cherokees or or the Mayans or or the Greeks or the Romans? You just don't see that that communication that that link. Yet to independently come up with this this link or this association that oh by the way that's the dog star, that to me is fascinating. And and the and the fact that kolav is is Hebrew for dog is fascinating. Next point, Sirius is the brightest star in our night sky. Not only is it the brightest, it is twice as bright as the next brightest star. This fits the description of Kolob as provided by God to Abraham. If two things exist and there be one above the other, there shall be greater things above them. Therefore, Kolob is the greatest of all the Kokobim. 
Kokobim is Hebrew. Remember that im ending means plural. Kokov means star. So Kokobim means stars, plural. Kolob is the greatest of all the Kokobim. And he's not saying that it is the brightest star of all. Because scientifically, we could say Sirius is definitely not the brightest star. There are brighter stars, but God makes this distinction in Abraham, which I think is important. Kolob is the greatest of all the cocoa beam that thou hast seen, mm. because it is nearest unto me. Um, this could well be interpreted uh, as God telling Abraham that Kolob is the greatest star that you can see from where you are. In other words, the brightest star in our sky. And, and like I said, um, Sirius is the brightest star by at least double the next brightest star. Next point, Sirius has been associated with divinity for a long time. Sirius is a Greek word which may have come from the Egyptian Osiris, the father god of Egyptian mythology. Uh, it is at the very least associated with the Egyptian goddess Isis, the mother of the gods. In Babylonian astrology, it was associated with Marduk. The king of gods. Yeah, Marmaduke. Good old Marduk. Marduk. <laughs> and also with his act of creation. As the brightest star in the sky, there was hardly a religious belief anciently that did not associate the star with their supreme being. Even the Hindu history, Sirius was associated with Shiva. Okay, next point. Sirius potentially interacts with our solar system. An article by William Brown describes that binary star systems are the normal and a single star rather is the exception. Where our star is concerned, there appears to be another star that our star interacts with. According to Brown, a likely candidate for gravitational locking with our star is Sirius. Mm. There seems to be resonance with our solar system and Sirius, which also helps explain the axial precession evident in our solar system. Another article talks about how Sirius is and has been viewed as our sun's sun. And that just as our sun gives our physical world light, Sirius is the light to our spiritual world. Compare these views with Faxilomy 2 in the book of Abraham. And if you go over into the Faxilomy 2, you see Kolob and, and is giving light to our sun. So you have this, this, this two-faced kind of creature at the center. They said, this is Kolob, and it's giving light to, to our star, our sun, which is then giving the light to the planets. So this, this matches this idea that our star is, is a star from, from Sirius. Next point, Sirius is a binary star system. What most people see as one bright star is actually two stars really close together. One star, Sirius A, is twice as large as our sun. Sirius B is the same size as our Earth, but has the same density of our sun. Joseph Smith described the place where God lives very similar to what I would imagine life on a star is. God Almighty himself dwells in eternal fire. Flesh and blood cannot go there, for all things corrupted is devoured by the fire. Where the dog star is located very close to another star and Kolob is located very close to where God dwells, perhaps Sirius A is Kolob while Sirius B is the place where God dwells. If our earth was patterned after where we used to live, perhaps the place where God lives is comparable in size to where we live now, only the place where we live now is made of different materials to support our mortal life. Cool. Next point. There are several studies that suggest that not only is Sirius a binary system, but there are actually three stars. The studies are not conclusive, however, because they have not been able to see a third star. One hypothesis is that the third star is actually a neutron star. 
A neutron star would be invisible to see from our position in the galaxy with the technology that we have. The concept of three stars close together is reminiscent of the Godhead. The idea that one star is invisible while two other stars are not is also similar to the idea that the Father and the Son have physical bodies while the Holy Ghost has a spiritual body which we cannot see from our current standpoint in life. Another connection is that the two unknown stars mentioned in the ex- is mentioned in the explanation of figure 5 in fact simile 2 the sun receives its power through the medium of cliffosysis um, or hakako beam the stars represented by numbers 22 and 23 receiving light from the revolutions of kolob these two unknown stars are pictured in the same frame as kolob According to Brown, Sirius would need the extra stars in order to be gravitationally bound with our solar system because of the distance. The two are eight year eight light years apart. Okay, next point. Sirius is a major star in our branch of the galaxy and is towards the root of our branch. When the early church scholars were looking for Kolob, they looked to the center of the galaxy, hoping to find a massive star around which the entire galaxy revolved. However, there is no such star towards the center of our galaxy. Our galaxy is made up of four arms, a very symbolic number. The river and the Garden of Eden splits into four streams to go and water the four corners of the earth. While we cannot trace a star back to the center of our galaxy, Sirius stands towards the front of our arm, perhaps as a governing star that governs all planets that are of the same order or down the same stream or Milky Way River, it stands towards the head of the branch of the Milky Way to govern all stars within that branch. Next point. And this is actually, I think, our last point. Not necessarily to do with Sirius itself, but in Canis Majoris constellation, there is another star that I find fascinating. It is VY Canis Majoris. It is the largest star we know about. However... Its growth was not sustainable, and it has died from within. The whole thing took place over a little over 5,000 years ago. So 5,000 years ago, we so had recently, the star. though. Yes. We have been observing the star shrink ever since around 1850. Because it is about 5,000 light years away from us, what we are observing now already took place. Hmm. The way the star is going to die is that a tiny black hole is at the heart of the star and will eat the star up from the inside out. It'll eventually explode and destroy everything near it, resulting in a new black hole. As opposed to a star, this new object will not emit any light, but rather absorb any light around it. The connection I see here starts with the fact that this star is in the same constellation as Sirius, Canis Majoris. Stars have often been used to represent people, and maybe what we see here is symbolic representation of what has already taken place with the family of God. Perhaps this star represents one of God's children who rose in prominence so much so that he sought to rule over all the other stars or to be greater than all the other stars. This quick rise to prominence fueled by pride also led to the star's downfall. The inward pride destroyed the star and the star took out anyone willing to follow it. Now it no longer emits light but reigns in darkness. Jeez. This star could represent the fall of Satan. Wild. So I don't... I don't know, but but there's some pretty cool things. And and you know what? We can tack on one extra point at the end if you want. Okay. You know those crazy ancient aliens? I love that the, the orange alien guy, aliens. <laughs> with the with the wild hair? Oh, I love this guy, the weird weird spray tan. Yeah, books have been written 
that it, it was that the Dogon people in Africa believed that aliens visited our our Earth around 5,000 years ago, giving the Egyptians the technology that they needed. But they say that these aliens originated from Sirius. Is that why, is that why all the uh, Egyptian gods and stuff had those like uh, dog head headdresses and in all the depictions? You know what I'm talking about? Or were they coyotes? Remember all those old? I mean, didn't you ever see like uh, didn't you ever see uh, Stargate? I haven't seen Stargate. It was just what? sad. I, I... <laughs> Never mind. I'm sorry. When you talk about their headdress, I I instantly go to Pharaoh's. He's got the two crown, one from Upper Egypt and one from Lower Egypt. And uh, no, we're talking about the different ones. We're talking about the dudes that have like the they're like holding the little like candy canes. And they've got like the dog heads coming. I out know of them. what you're talking about. Of course, I know you know exactly what you're, what you're talking you're trying about. Trying to make me feel like an idiot. No, I'm not. No, yeah, it could be. I wonder if they go. I I need to watch. Uh, I need to watch Stargate again. I wonder if the portal that they take is too serious. So 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 modern. A lot of modern conspiracy theories and ancient aliens and and all aliens. sorts of weird stuff gets connected with Sirius. I don't know that I want to drag that in here. I don't know why how. Why not, man? I don't Let's know how. Go. I don't know how credible any of that is. Well, you mean aliens coming and building the pyramids? Whatever, man. For the record, I think that is the most of the, the assumptions that they jump to, like aliens. I I don't know how you I don't know how you get to that conclusion. To me, it's just as weird as saying, "Yeah, Christ is coming with bare-legged tattoos on his thigh." Yeah, like I mean, that, that. That's is, a weird assumption. That's like, also a weird assumption. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where you're getting that from. From the guy on the History Channel, man. Dude, it's the History Channel. You know it's credible. <laughs> All right. What are we talking about next week? Oh, Good work today, Jason. I'm excited. This is going to be fun. Um, Next week is our introduction into Genesis. It's going to talk about the creation. I want to talk a little bit more about the Bible, how it's put together. Okay. Um, And the creation account is just, just amazing. And and maybe we'll even at the, at the end, maybe at the beginning of next week, in the in the end of Abraham, you've got God saying, "Who shall I send?" And you have, "Here am I, send me." And here am I, send me. And God says He will send the first, and the second is angry and keeps not His first estate. And it kind of leaves us there with not a lot of details or a little bit vague. Uh, we talk a little bit about the the fall of Satan here when we talk about the star and the Canis Majoris constellation that, that got too big for its britches and now it's going into a black hole to mm-hmm. destroy everything around it. Um, if, we're, if we're out of time this week, maybe we'll just hit on Christ and Satan and what was proposed at the beginning. What is this whole thing about? And then take us into the creation account, Genesis and the beginning of Old Testament. Cool, yeah, we'll just, we'll, we can we can chat about that first thing next week for sure. Sounds great. Okay, until next week. See ya. See ya.